This morning, uh, we have a really special treat. One of the things that we're going to try to do in the next year is give you all opportunities to hear from our partners. You might hear about our partners a lot if you pay attention to all the media that we put out there. And one of our partners is an organization called Memorial Drive Ministries in Clarkston. Uh, it's a campus, essentially, that is multi-purpose. It has several different nonprofits and churches that all meet in the same space. And it's sort of a hub for all kinds of activity from all different cultures for displaced people who find themselves here in Clarkston just a couple miles down the road, one of the most densely like diverse square miles in the country. And David Roth is the director of Memorial Drive Ministries, and he oversees all the activity. And as you can imagine, this last year, if you are a part of a refugee community, you've been hit particularly hard economically and just in so many other ways, um, access to medical care and so on. And Memorial Drive has just been a faithful presence of God's peace and provision in that space. And David is also such an amazing speaker and preacher. And every time he teaches, I learn something new about the Bible and about God. And I really can't wait for you to experience him. So, David Roth, why don't you come on up? Thank you, Matthew. Now that Matthew set expectations too high, bring them back down a little bit. But it is so, so good to be with you to celebrate this Lord's Day together, to get to open God's Word together, and to share more about um, Clarkston and Memorial Drive Ministries. Uh, Clarkston, as uh, Matthew was saying, has been the site of refugee resettlement for decades. These are people who have fled persecution and war and violence around the world and have been afforded a chance to begin rebuilding their lives here as some of our newest neighbors, and it's our privilege to get to welcome them and to stand for welcome in a city um, that has a long legacy of welcome, and we get to be a part of that work as Christ followers to get to seek Christ among our newest neighbors and get to serve Christ um, among and alongside our friends in Clarkston. So um, before I jump into today's sermon, we'll be in Matthew chapter 14, but I also want to offer a word of thanks. Many of you participated in our school supplies drive that we have had uh, ongoing for the last few months. Um, I saw many of you delivering uh, those school supplies to our campus yesterday afternoon. So thank you so much for being a part of that effort. It makes a huge difference for refugee families who are trying to get school ready in a brand new culture. I mean, imagine, uh, I feel like all of us with kids have enough trouble trying to figure out a school system and how are we going to get ready? And, and for someone from another place and another culture, it can be even more challenging. So thank you for helping alleviate that burden of school supplies for the families that call our campus home. Um, I also want to just say, this is my first time I'm looking out of the crowd seeing masks. I haven't uh, preached to a masked audience, so just give me some thumbs up, thumbs down. I'll get some feedback as we go. Um, but in any case, uh, just, just jokes. But let's look at chapter um, Matthew 14 together. We'll be starting in the 13th verse. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to the disciples, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. 
He blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand, besides women and children. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, in your son Jesus, you provide for us the things that we need. Guide us by your Holy Spirit as we sit with your sacred word that we might live and learn to live as heirs of abundance. As we sit at your feet and seek to learn from your word, teach us what you would have us learn. Form us into greater Christ-likeness that we might give witness to your eternal kingdom of justice and peace and love in this city, in this time, and in this place. All this we ask for the sake of your Son. Amen. Amen. So the text we have before us might be a familiar one to some of you, maybe not so to others of you, but it's uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 plus women and children, so more than just 5,000 people. And he does so with just uh, two fish and five loaves. He encounters a crowd in a barren place, a crowd with many sick people in it. Uh, The disciples come telling him, send these crowds home. It's late. We're in a barren, deserted place, and they need food. It's dinner time. Get them out of here so they can go buy food for themselves. There isn't enough food for all of these crowds. But Jesus tells the disciples to feed the crowds of people. And the disciples say, we don't have enough. It's not enough. But Jesus takes the meager offering. He blesses it. He breaks it and gives it to the disciples, and they distribute it to the entire crowd. And after all have had their fill, they take up 12 baskets of leftovers, a miracle of feeding. And as we read and reflect on this story from the Gospel of Matthew, I want to think with you about meals, about meals, our everyday meals. We all eat meals every day, multiple meals. I want to think with you about meals and how we might recover meals as a spiritual practice, not just something we gloss over, but something uh, we attend to and and find as a site of God's grace to us and a site of grace that we can extend to others, uh, perhaps especially to newcomers, to immigrants, to refugees. I want to explore this with you under three headings. We're going to look at the, uh, the contrast the text wants you to see, the background the text hopes you know, and the practice the text calls us to. The contrast today's passage wants you to see, the background today's passage hopes you know, and the practice today's passage calls us to. So let's start at the beginning in verse 13. When Jesus heard this... What did, what did Jesus hear? The, the careful reader has to ask, right? Let's go back. Now, when Jesus heard this, what Jesus had heard was a tragic story that comes just before today's passage in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the tragic story of the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been Jesus' friend in ministry, the forerunner to Jesus' ministry. And John the Baptist's death happens at a meal. It happens at a feast. King Herod had been the political power in Judea, and he has thrown a lavish party All the good stuff, your favorite restaurant, it catered. Um, I'm thinking Iberian pig, but but no bacon-wrapped dates because there was a Jewish audience at the party. But uh, bread and wine and cheese, food in plenty, all the good stuff that a party has, beautiful people laughing too loud, talking too loud, uh, dancing. It's a lavish, abundant feast. But through this series of unfortunate events that happens, the party ends in violence. John the Baptist is beheaded at Herod's order. And this is, it's a gruesome detail. It's a gory detail to start a Sunday morning with. But John the Baptist's head is actually brought to the guests on a platter, 
on a serving dish. They are served the injustice of the Roman Empire at this feast that started wonderfully but ends in chaos and a kind of complicity as the guests slink home feeling defiled, revolted, disgusted. Why start with these gory details? The reason is because Matthew tells these stories back to back to to lift up a contrast. Herod's feast starts with abundance but ends in scarcity where Jesus goes to a barren place where there's scarcity and his feast ends in abundance. Herod's feast starts with fellowship, with rejoicing, with connection, but it ends in darkness and pain. Jesus' feast is the opposite. It starts with a disheveled crowd who are like sheep without a shepherd. They're sick, but through Jesus' compassion, his healing power, he brings them together around around a shared meal. Jesus hears about Herod's feast. It troubles his spirit. He leaves on a boat. He arrives with new crowds, and he decides, here I will set my own table. It will be a different table than the table that Herod sets. And this is key. Our world today, too, is one in which the injustice and violence of a King Herod is still very much present. I could pick many issues and examples that likely come to your mind after watching the last few years unfold, but I want to focus in with you just today for a moment on the plight of refugees. Surely one of the most prominent cries across our globe today are the cries of those who are displaced. Displacement affects over 1% of the human family. One in 100 humans on this earth is displaced. Since 2010, the number of displaced people has doubled. There's over 82 million people who are displaced in our world today. We're in the midst of the worst displacement crisis that the world has ever seen. And the crux of the issue is that this, we are, as a human community, displacing one another faster than we're providing solutions for those who are displaced. King Herod is still very much present, whether it's the widowed mother of five from Somalia fleeing terrorist violence who arrives in a refugee camp in Kenya, or a father from Syria who flees with his daughters because he knows they'll never get the education they need in the midst of civil war, or a Chin refugee from Burma who arrives in Malaysia and is severely underemployed, or an asylum seeker from Honduras detained in America for two years trying to make her case before a court that feels woefully stacked against her, or the Afghan who interpreted for the U.S. military trying to make a better future for his country, but now is unsure if he'll be allowed to come to America to seek safety, or a Congolese journalist who's reporting and editorializing make him feel unsafe in his country, so he has to cross a border. In all these cases, there's a kind of King Herod behind those stories. There is an injustice there. And when Jesus hears about it, the same way as in today's text, when Jesus hears about it, he withdraws, he moves across, and he wants to set a new table. He wants to show us a better way to practice our meals, to do so in a way that may start with scarcity but won't end there. And this brings us to the background the text hopes we know. As Jesus shows up and begins his ministry, we hear about him eating over and over and over again. All of the Gospels keep telling us about Jesus eating, eating with tax collectors, eating with sinners, eating with zealots, eating with women, eating with the crowds, eating with his disciples. Jesus is going out of his way to end up at the table with all of the despised and rejected of Greco-Roman society. Jesus' ministry that we see in this story, all of this meal eating is growing out of a prerogative that Israel receives back in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus didn't just show up and start feeding people. It wouldn't have made much sense. 
It's growing out of a call that Israel already had in their life with God for a long time. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there is this repeated concern for the stranger. The noun stranger appears 22 times in the book of Deuteronomy, which makes many scholars believe, I think correctly, that widespread displacement was a serious concern in the place and time in which Deuteronomy was written, as it is in our day today. In ancient times, not unlike today, those who were displaced by war or violence or environmental disaster were at a real risk. Disconnected from their families, those who were displaced became vulnerable to exploitation. And what Deuteronomy says over and over again is that the stranger is actually Israel's kin. The stranger is family to Israel, and Israel's obligations to their family are the same obligations Israel has to the stranger. You shall love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So integrated into Israel, the strangers will become safe again. But how does that happen in actuality, right? The mechanism or the process that Deuteronomy envisions by which strangers will be enfolded into Israel and become safe again in the safety of community is meals. It happens over meals. It happens over festival meals. Feasting texts in Deuteronomy again and again say the stranger is to be included in Israel's feasting. Mark and Luke Glanville write this, in the feasts of Deuteronomy, the dependent stranger is, like any other member of the community, caught up in the joy of the feast. Deuteronomy is saying that food and sharing meals is a way to connect across lines of difference, to attend to one another, to recognize, celebrate, and restore the image of God in one another, and to restore one another to the safety of community again. And this is important to note as we look at today's text because this is what Jesus is enacting. Jesus bursts onto the scene and begins eating with everyone, drawing people together around a shared table. What's he doing? He's doing what Deuteronomy lifts up, drawing the displaced, the vulnerable, the forgotten, the forsaken back into community, both with God and with one another. This is also foundational as we consider what the church's ministry in a world of displacement might look like and how to minister in Clarkston, what would this look like today? How might our practice of meal sharing take on this pattern of Christ? I don't know about you, but so often I consider meals almost like an inconvenience. Uh, not, not the special meals, but the daily meals, right? Uh, so often I find myself skipping breakfast on the way out, to, you know, out the door to get to work. I'll uh, find myself eating a granola bar for lunch, on the run, in, in the car, on the way to the next place I need to be. I, just this week, I caught myself. There was 90 seconds before my Zoom call started, and I was trying to finish the apple I had for lunch, right? Uh, maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you recognize yourself in those stories. Maybe you don't. But uh, we have to recognize our culture can tend to this way of viewing meals. We're the place where fast food was invented. It's this idea that meals are to be fast uh, boluses of energy, nutrients, that then we're on to our next task. It's a task-oriented a task view of meals. Um, but I think what we're seeing in our, our scripture today is that's not everything meals can be. Meals can be a time to slow down. Meals can be a time to stop, a, a time to be reminded that the people in front of us, the people around us, the people who we pass as we're eating our chewy bar on the way out the door are people made in the image of God, to stop. A mealtime is a time where we might stop, see our coworkers, our employees, the people in the city all around us, to see them not just as a, a place we might be able to make money off of, but as someone made in the image of God who's worthy of connection 
worthy of offering undistracted space to. That's an essentially humanizing practice. We can embrace as a way of stewarding our mealtime. Working with refugees and people from all over the world, this is something I learn about a lot uh, and see firsthand a lot. Many cultures around the world relate to food in much more slow and relational ways than we do here in the U.S. I remember actually on a, a flight, I was on a flight to Morocco, and it was me sitting next to a man in very traditional uh, garb that I did not recognize, Moroccan traditional garb, had a headdress on. We could not speak the same language. He spoke Arabic, um, the Moroccan variant of Arabic, and uh, we could not communicate. But every time food, he either took food out of his bag or food was brought to him, every time he had food before him, uh, he would open the bag of whatever snack it was that I did not recognize. He would offer it to me before he would reach his own hand in the bag, right? Because he saw food always as an invitation to the people around him. That's a beautiful way of relating to food. I would never offer my food to a stranger on a plane. It's just not how I was raised. But what a beautiful way to relate to food and to mealtime, that every mealtime is a reminder, who can I invite to this table with me? I'm reminded of this. I have uh, twin daughters, Anna and Noel, who are about to turn two. If, if you hear cries coming from the lobby area, that's likely my children. Um, they, uh, I often find that when I, I strap them into their chairs for mealtime when I'm with them, and sometimes I've got them strapped in. It's my time to go be efficient. I'm going to go uh, do the laundry, unload the dishwasher, do the dishes. I'm going to uh, respond to those work texts that I have hanging over my head, but what we have found, and this I believe is God's grace to us in a special way, uh, if we are not attending to our children, giving them our attention as they eat, they will uh, gleefully throw their food onto the floor until <laughs> until we come give them our attention, right? It's like something built in deep into who we are as humans, that meals are to be a time of connection, not a time of distraction. This draws us to the practice the text calls us to. Uh, George MacDonald has this quote. He says this, Work is not always required. There is such a thing as sacred idleness, the cultivation of which is now fearfully neglected. Every time you bump up against a mealtime, it's a reminder of this truth. And why does sacred idleness matter? Why does sacred idleness matter in our world today? Why does sacred idleness matter to refugees and immigrants in a world of displacement? Uh, let's learn from Henry Nouwen the answer to that question. He says this, to convert hostility into hospitality requires the cultivation of friendly, empty space. Friendly, empty space. To convert hostility into hospitality requires friendly, empty space. Who can deny that our culture is one marked by increasing levels of hostility across every boundary of difference? Who can deny that over the past decade, xenophobia, fear, and hostility towards immigrants and refugees has been on the rise? And how will we convert that hostility into hospitality into from hostility to a kind of mutual hospitality where we can encounter God in one another, even across boundaries of difference? How will we do that? Henry Nouwen says we'll need friendly, empty space. And the daily practice that you and I have every day where we have an opportunity to create friendly, empty space for the people around us is mealtime, shared meals. That's the power of what a meal can be. When we live in God's economy and start to see the world through God's eyes, every mealtime is a reminder and at least an opportunity to be able to receive that grace from God and extend it to others. 
As I come to the close of the sermon, I want to take a moment to turn our attention to this table, to the church's meal, to the, to the Lord Jesus' meal. When God looks out at a world of injustice and wants to transform it into a world of shalom, what does God do? God sets a table. God makes a meal and invites us to it. Jesus loves meals so much, Jesus becomes one for you and for me and for, as our text from Ephesians today, and for those who are far off. The gospel from this text today is that the Lord of Lords is establishing a new kingdom, some of whose members may not have known the privileges of belonging in any human realm. Do you ever feel alone, isolated, vulnerable, an outsider in someone else's world? Do you ever feel like you need the attention of God and you're willing to throw your food on the floor until you get it? The gospel from today's text is that God eats with us. God sees us in that place, has compassion, moves towards us, and shares a meal with us and teaches us how to be the kinds of people who can extend that same grace in our daily lives to the people all around us, especially to those who have been displaced by violence. And that's good news. Let's pray together. Father, in your son Jesus, you give us everything we need for salvation and for life. Guide us by your Holy Spirit to live as members of your kingdom and heirs of abundance with you. As we prepare to receive the sacrament of bread and wine, may our meals, wherever, whenever they happen, may they always be for us a kind of encounter with the very compassion of Jesus Christ. Even when our meals are rushed or on the go, may they be for us a reminder of your son's love that makes us whole and that heals us. May it be a reminder of your redeeming love for us poured out at the cross and a site of formation for us and for this city that makes our life more holy, more complete, and more rich. All this we ask for the sake of your love. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.